You can get your worship guides out. We're going to take a few notes this morning and, uh, you know, kind of get right into our service. Um, uh, basically, we're talking about empowering women because how many know that uh, us guys, we need a little bit of help? Come on. And uh, so that's part of what's really going on in the Word. And so really what I wanted to do through this series was kind of, it's a vision for really helping women step into the call of God that's upon their lives. Amen. And one of the things that I said in week one, how many were here for week one? Raise your hand. Okay, good. If you weren't, I just want to encourage you to get that message. I think the person that raised your hand would tell you if they got a chance to get that message, it will really help uh, both sides, male and female. Uh, one of the things that I started with right out of the gate was a big idea. And this big idea was somewhat controversial, and I didn't really step into that that much. But I said this. I said that biology makes a male and a female but it doesn't necessarily make a man or a woman. Amen? In other words, you can be uh, two people come together in relationship and create a child, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great mom or a great dad. You might be able to go into the woods, hunt, kill a deer with a bow and arrow, you know, have a big beard, shave it later, and you're a, you're a, you're a male, but you're not, ne not, not necessarily a man. You might still be a boy on the inside, right? And so there's these special attributes, these special characteristics that make us really a man or a woman. And God talks about that in the Word of God. In fact, last week I kind of told you this, that um, there are certain characteristics that make a man. A man kind of has, has two jobs. Now, we're not good at multitasking, so we can't have too many. But we had two kind of primary jobs in the Genesis account. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God put man in charge of the garden, and he basically said, I want you to tend, and I want you to watch over it. Or one translation says, work and care for it. Everybody say, work and care. And then out of that kind of uh, Genesis experience, we, we kind of made a distinction. And it's really important to this particular series. It's really important to the male-female relationship, uh, the man and woman's relationship. It's really important to what's happening in the home, what's happening in the community, in the work world, and also in the church of Jesus Christ. But one of the key distinctions is, is that it's not so much about leadership as it is about headship. So headship is reserved for the man according to the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, the Bible basically tells us the head of man is the woman, and, and, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Headship and leadership are distinctly different. Okay, and so headship, we described last week, for those of you kind of going, what, 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 you're trying to catch up. Last week, we basically said that headship is fundamentally about sacrificial love. In fact, Ephesians 5 talks about this, that a man's supposed to lay his life down for his wife. What would happen if a man served his wife like that? She would willingly want to submit or yield or kind of invite him into that leadership capacity. But because man's not laying his life down, we have sometimes a resistance to that. And so headship. Headship and leadership are different. A woman can lead. Women can be leaders according to God's word. And so headship is not just about sacrificial love. It's also about physical care. A primary responsibility of the man is to work hard, to go to bed tired, to take care of his family, to be a protector. God sits on his throne, but he doesn't like lazy boys. Can I have an amen out there? And so, so there's, there's a characteristic that is, characteristics or attributes that are reserved for the man. There are characteristics that are reserved for the woman as well. Headship 
uh, denotes uh, a primary responsibility. And it doesn't mean that though he has that primary responsibility, in other words, God puts not necessarily more authority, but more weight on the man. See, see, men when, and, and tradition and, and the skewed selfish perspective says, you know, that's right, I'm in charge. No, <laughs> you're missing the point. If you're in charge, you're responsible. When my parents would go away and leave me with my sister, they'd, they'd reluctantly tell me that I was in charge of my younger sister because they knew I couldn't wait to be in charge. <laughs> but they also knew and they also would tell me that I would be responsible if anything went wrong. And so primary responsibility is given uh, to the man, but the woman can exercise leadership. And, and she is not inferior. She's not inferior in the home. She's not inferior in the workplace. And she's not inferior in the church. And so we'll discuss more of women in leadership next week. Today, because of the special attributes of this service, we can't get into some of those specifics. But next week, don't miss it. I'm going to get into some of those statements that Paul made uh, in the New Testament. They get everybody all hung up. And I promise it's going to be an interesting service. But what we learned for the woman, what makes a woman is, is really two jobs as well. And she can handle more than that, but two jobs that were spoken of in um, Genesis. In fact, in Genesis 2.18, it said, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. He was down there in the garden. He was naked with a pair of scissors pruning everything. And God looked down and said, that's not good. He could hurt himself. And so we're going to send him a helper suitable for him, or the Bible says fit for him. And so the two roles of a woman that were there and reserved for her is to be a helper and to be the perfect fit for him. Now, if, now what we learned about this word helper is it's not so much... Uh, people always want to focus on a subordination or an inferiority that comes within that role. Yet, the word that is used for helper in the scriptures is the same word that is used for God when he's helping his kids. And so, therefore, if God can be a helper, the position of helper cannot be inferior. Everybody getting what I'm saying right now? In fact, by virtue of needing help, the person, though they might have primary responsibility, receiving it is in that situation weaker because they need help. Does that make sense? So helper is not inferior. It's not inherently inferior. Every time it's used in the Bible, though, it's referring to helping someone with primary responsibility. See, women are designed by God to be the perfect fit for man, but the enemy tries to get him to fight with man. And instead of, instead of coming alongside, instead of being the hand-in-glove relationship, it becomes kind of two fists coming together, and, 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 it, and, it, and it doesn't sharpen each other. It, it creates sparks. But God has led man and woman to be in this complementary relationship where both are created by God unique. Both have equal importance, value, and dignity within the word of God. But it is in my weakness that Stacy can bring her strengths to my weakness as the fit, the perfect fit for me. Just as the woman was taken from the side of man, by the way, not the backside, but the side of man denoting an intimacy. So she was taken from him to later come alongside him in perfect alignment, in perfect unity, in perfect intimacy. And so when I'm weak, she brings her strength and she helps me. What's even better is when I'm strong in an area and she's strong in an area, we come together and two are better than one. And God was trying to say, yes, Adam, you're alone. He, by the way, he wasn't lonely. 
He was alone. That means all one. He was actually whole. He could just do more with her beside him. That's what God wanted for us. Is everybody with me? And so, so last week we barely touched those, some of the obstacles that the ladies have. Some of the, some of the hurdles that we must remember, ladies, to avoid. And, and I want to highlight basically that in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible talks about this, these curse, the fall of man, basically. It's, it's the big fall. It's when everything kind of went wrong uh, in Genesis 3.1, Genesis 3.16. But in verse 16, if you uh, have time to look at this later and unpack this, basically the Bible says because uh, a curse, by the way, is a consequence of sin. So when God curses, it's, because, it's not because of him, it's because of us. We receive consequences for the sins, of, uh, for, for the things that we did wrong in, in, in violating his commandments. And he only had one. He only had, I wish we only had one today. But we, he only had one. Just don't eat of this tree. And because of that, it brought certain curses upon humanity. And one of the curses was that, it says in verse 16, that the woman's desire would be for her husband. Now, when I first read that, I was like, yes. Her desire will be for me. But that's not what it's talking about, gentlemen. So don't get too excited. Literally, don't get excited. Okay? <laughs> what it's saying there in the original language is desire is talking. It's, it's actually a distorted desire, which I want to talk about. It's basically she will want to usurp your authority. And conversely, he will want to rule over you. Boom. Everything went wrong as a result of violating God's word. And then the curse brought consequence. And the consequence for the women was that she would have an increase in pain during childbirth. And, and I've been with Stacy four times seeing four children brought into this world. And every time she'd bring a child into this world, I would, I would have a swelling gratitude that I didn't have to go through that. <laughs> I never looked at her and said, oh, I wish I could do that. No, that never that never happened. You know, when she was sweating and snarling and momentary demonic manifestations. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I thought, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I saw pain up close. And when you see pain up close, it reminds you that we are living in a broken world that needs to be fixed. And, and what's cool is there's a natural parallel to a spiritual. When The Bible says when the baby comes, the travail is remembered no more. The pain vanishes. See, so God wants to take you through some of the travail of these relational dynamics, and he wants to birth something. He wants to redeem something through your pain in your relationship between the husband and wife, between men and women in the world in which we live today. Can I have an amen? amen. But sin entered the cosmos. Sin brought pain, and sin brought problems. And one of the problems, one of the, of the curses is that the problem would be in relationship to the man, ladies. And there would be this, there'd be this, this tension. And, and sin didn't just affect ladies externally with childbirth. It affected her internally where her hope and her, and her heart of womanhood was affected. Her femininity was affected. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And because of what you've done, in other words, there will be a disorder in your desires. Desire has been disordered. In James chapter 4, the Bible says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Do they, not, do they not come from your desires? 
that battle or rage within you. See, what happened is because of the fall, all our desires got distorted. They got flipped. And sometimes even good desires, the enemy twisted that and said, we're going to take that good thing that you like, gentlemen, where you want to go out and you want to work hard and that's your job and you're supposed to get tired. But now we're going to take it too far where now you're all after the money. Your work is your worth and you want to have more so you can feel like you're better. And in the process, you lose your wife and you lose your children. And ladies, the same thing happens in our world today as well. He takes good things, and he takes them too far. Yes, you're supposed to come alongside a man, but you're not supposed to idolatrize that man. You're not supposed to look to him for all of your, to provide all of your needs, your physical, your spiritual, uh, your emotional, only the things that God can provide, and it gets distorted, those desires. Is everybody tracking with me in this house right now? And then in the process where you're trying to do that, men are oppressing you. Men are rejecting you. Men are trying to rule over you. And then we overcompensate ladies and we, and we, have, these, we have this independence and we have this self-sufficiency and we have this uh, control that we try to, um, you know, implement. And, and we go backwards and fo- I don't need a man to satisfy me. I don't need a man. Then on the other hand, sometimes I need a man to complete me. And, and it's the only way I can be happy. And it's all distorted desires. It's disordered and distorted desires desires and when your desires are put in ultimate position or the primary position above God it will always preoccupy your heart and control your life and so the hurdles for ladies basically uh, different hurdles that ladies have is comparison everybody say comparison this is crazy stuff but in comparison basically the disordered desire for approval and validation that's what comparison is I read this article by Julia Oliphant I had to have some secular evidence but it always supports what the Bible says uh, in, this, in this particular instance they say things they find out to be true and then the Bible says that and they're like dang it I didn't know that they get mad about it but she basically I'll, I'll highlight this article but she discovered from her research and it was a very broad research she said that women are guilty Here, here's the name of the article why do girls check out other girls comparison right see women are guilty of checking out other girls more than men I didn't even know that and and it's not just clothes it's it's every aspect of another woman's appearance it's whatever is deemed important to that person women will be checking them out it's a comparison thing women actually I didn't know this either women actually dress for other women most women uh, don't look in the mirror and ask, what does he see? They, they look in the mirror and think, what does she see? All the ladies are quiet here this morning. <laughs> you know? I mean, girls, you're being driven by culture, not by a biblical standard. You know, and just even just the last century, the things that, that preoccupy us to, to raise our status or to make us feel better about ourselves, it changed so, so much. You know, what was viewed as beautiful, you know, now is, you know, six-pack abs and and a tan. Back in the day, you know, it was curvy and it was was a little pasty white and curly and, 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 and people would tell you, you need to eat something. So everybody, go home and eat today, okay? Another place that comparison shows up for ladies is in parenting. Parenting. There are what we call today mommy wars out there. Mommy wars. This has gotten absurd. Women will get together in a very short order. It'll come together. It'll be kind of nice and funsy for a little while. And then one lady will say something that gets everybody all disturbed. She'll say, oh, you know, my little Abigail, uh, she just enrolled, uh, she's five, and she just enrolled in marine biology camp. And she's been studying crustaceans. 
and she's apparently brilliant. And because of this camp that she's in, she's going to be uh, received an early entrance and placement for Ivy League schools. And all the other moms are like, my kid's an idiot. My kid couldn't even make s'mores last night by the fire. My five-year-old boy is still not potty trained. He's an idiot. You know? It's this competing thing that takes place. Some of you are in the world today with sports. I know people that one guy spent $5,000 to fly a guy from Brazil to teach his three-year-old soccer. You know? I mean, I mean, that's just crazy. And let me tell you something. He's not going to get a scholarship. And somebody's in, the, in here going, well, he scored three goals yesterday. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like cult-like. It's like cult-like, you know? And so who's losing? Our children are losing, ladies. No free thought, no experimentation, no exploration. Pick your sport, son. You can't be good at everything. You got to pick your sport. You know, if you want to make varsity someday, you can have, I'm three, mom. I don't want to pick yet. Well, you're not, if you want me to support you, you got to pick your sport. But if you do, I'll come alongside. I'm going to put some glutamine and creatine in your bottle, and you're going to be strong. Got P90X for three-year-olds. Crawl, crawl, crawl. Come on. Good job, good job. Holy cow. We see this in marriages. Ladies are comparing in marriages. I wish he would treat me like that. And we're always looking at somebody else's thing, this comparison. It kills. It ends in competition. It affects our identity. And it's a veneer, a faux identity placated around the false strength that has women constantly comparing themselves to other people. And social media is just, I feel bad for the young ladies because it's just a tool in the hands of the enemy. What could be worse than if that's, our, that's the hurdle of a woman to give them a phone with a camera? You know what I mean? You don't see any ladies getting up at 6 a.m., you know, with a pimple on their beaker and clear crusted on the night before, and they're going, snap. You know what I mean? Women wailing it on Wednesday. You know what I mean? No, no, no. Nobody's doing that. No, instead, we're, we're taking our, trying to take our best features, you know, we're like, bow, bow, chicka, bow, bow, chicka. bow, bow, chicka. and it might not be. A great feature, right? And so we're all dolled up, and it's an untrue image of oneself that ultimately leads to discontent and insecurity. Here's the second one is perfectionism. Everybody say perfectionism. It's like a female sport, you know? It's like a female sport. And women put this pressure on themselves and on their shoulders, and it's an impossible cross to bear. They have to be the perfect wife. They have to be the perfect mom. They have to be the perfect sister. They have to be the perfect employee, the perfect teacher. And where perfection is attained, excuse me, when it's not attained, they're paralyzed. They're paralyzed. Ladies, I hope you're, you're hearing what I'm saying right now, but where perfectionism is the goal, relationships will always be difficult. Conflict will be extremely difficult. Con the absence of conflict is not a sign of health. And so, so, so we can't navigate it because we have to be perfect. And you see this with moms as well. This, this perfectionism hits this mommy guilt thing. And mommy, mommies feel even more so than ever today. Uh, you know, I can't believe the pressure. I was, I was, I'm looking at, you know, my daughters, you know, kind of growing up raising kids. You know, when, back in the day, we didn't have organic Cheerios. You know what I'm saying? Like, we had honey buns, chips, and Coke, and our neighbors spanked us. And we turned out fine, 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 fine. <laughs> There's a cultural. <laughs> I'm good. 
I'll be all right. I'll be all right. There's this term that's out there today in science. It's called psychological determinism. Psychological determinism. And it basically says you receive your kids as, as a blank slate. And for women who struggle with comparison and perfectionism, you freak out because you're like, oh my gosh, I have to put all the right things in there. But if I do, he'll be perfect. She'll be perfect. And so I put this in, he'll avoid drugs. If I put this in, he'll date the right girls. If I put this in, he'll be a successful athlete with a creatine monohydrate. And if I put this in, he'll be okay. But if I don't, ah! and it's a pressure, psychological determinism. I can make them whatever I want them to be. And as Christians, I think it's creeped into the church, and we've attached Bible verses to that. And we simply just said, oh, just train up a child in the way he should go when he's old. No, we're training them the way we want them to go. And we call it God. And, and, and we're, not, we're afraid. We're afraid. And, and, and you're not going to be perfect, ladies. And you're going to snap once in a while, but it doesn't mean they're going to be a serial killer. You just have to own your mistakes and move forward. The perfectionism is brutalizing women, and it's born out of this fear of inadequacy. And the only thing that removes these old desires is a restoration of God's desires and original design. And so his original plan was this. He wants to restore what was lost. He wants to reverse the curse over you, men and women as well. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible said this. It said, God said, let us make mankind. By the way, that means man and woman. In our image, God has, God has, by the way, both male and female characteristics in our likeness so that they, everybody say they, they. that's talking about the man and the woman, both may rule. What? So in the beginning, God's intent was that man and woman would co-lead, co-reign on the earth, or the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the beasts of the field, over the entire earth. That was his plan. In this perfect environment, in this perfect design, they would co-lead, they would co-reign. Women were taken from his side to come alongside this hand-in-glove relationship. But as a result of man's sin, mankind's sin, hers and his, his and hers, there were consequences. And, and there's one consequence that I haven't highlighted yet that I want you to see, ladies, and I want men you to see this as well. As a result of sin, there was one particular consequence, and it was really a plot of the enemy that has been there through the centuries. In verse 14, the Bible says this. I'm going to read from Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Are you guys getting something out of this? It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Speaking of Satan now. And then he says this, and I will put enmity. Everybody say enmity. That's hostility, opposition, hatred between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Speaking of a prophecy of Jesus to come in that last part, I can't unpack that. But this word enmity, see, what's motivating this, the, the, the demeaning of women, the mistreatment of women, the objectification of women, the oppression of women, is Satan himself. Are you guys tracking with me what I'm saying to you? Satan himself to, to, to just, just hurt and harm and, and this hatred and this hostility, it comes from Satan himself. And so what was lost in the garden, listen, is restored in the garden. And so there's three gardens that I want to unpack for you, kind of so you can see them in the word. And I wish there was more we could talk about today, but everything begins and ends in the garden. In the garden of Eden, this is where it was all lost, where it all went wrong. Mankind, Adam and Eve, blew the perfect deal. They violated God's command. But women specifically, you lost your voice here. 
You lost your role, your significance. And ever since, listen, the greatest liberator in all humanity, Jesus Christ, has been trying to redeem you. Ever since. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens is, you see, first, the Garden of Eden, we lost it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that is thousands of years later, there's kind of a prophetic fulfillment that takes place. Uh, there, he's in the garden, and, and, and there's kind of a little, uh, uh, you know, ruckus ensues, a little battle ensues, and people are drawing swords, and they're getting ready to try to take Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, ho, 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 you don't have to get violent. You, I, I, this is all to fulfill prophecy. This is all to fulfill scripture. All of this must happen this way. In Matthew 26, 56, it says, all this had to take place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. What was going on here? In Gethsemane, before Jesus was crucified physically, he died to himself in Gethsemane. There was a death in Gethsemane to those selfish, uh, self-centered, uh, distorted, disordered desires. It took place there. He couldn't live, you know, for himself. He had to surrender himself to the will of God himself. He didn't retaliate. He didn't rebel. He didn't call what he could have called legions of angels to wipe everybody out. He didn't crush the head of Satan there outwardly, but inwardly he crushed the head of Satan. And he surrendered to God's original plan. And because of that, you and I will be able to receive the full benefits of not only an external redemption, but an internal redemption, ladies. God already knew this was going to happen. And just a few days later, after a brutal death that we have all heard before on Easter Sunday, on the third day, everybody say on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. And he came out of what is known as the garden tomb just outside of Calvary. And in John chapter 19, this is so significant. At the place where Jesus was crucified, the Bible says in John chapter 19, uh, verse 41, I'll read it to you. It says, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. And then in John 20, uh, now Mary, verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, Mary Magdalene, and she wept and she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head the other at the foot. And, and they asked, the angel said, why are you crying? And she said, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him. At this she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned towards him and began to run. She said, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher, teacher. She recognized his voice. She recognized his voice, began to come to him, and, she, and he says, don't hold me, don't touch me yet, Mary. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the good news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And I like to put in there, only her. In Galatians 3.28, the Bible tells us that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What a moment in time out of the garden tomb, from the garden of Eden to the garden tomb. Sin and death came through the first Adam, but life came through, in Romans 5 it says, the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ the righteous. And on this day, all that was lost for male and female, man and woman, was regained, was reversed. The curse was reversed. 
Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute and a demoniac, Jesus cast seven devils out of her, was the first witness of a resurrected Savior. How significant. See, I believe God uses the weakest things to make his strength known the most. You say, the weaker vessel? I, I, I don't know. I've never had a baby. I'm not sure that I want to call my wife the weaker vessel sometimes. I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure that I want to go that far. But if God were discriminating against women, then why would he tr- entrust the greatest truth and hand it to a woman? And why would he hand it to a woman like that? If Christ be not raised, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is useless and our faith is meaningless. So why in heaven's name did he reveal himself to a woman first? All that we celebrate each Easter on the high holiday hung on the testimony of a woman of ill repute, a woman who was rejected by the religious. Isn't it interesting how uncommon it is or how common it is for women to be rejected in the church? Mary, you know, he spoke about this woman. Jesus spoke about Mary before. She was the woman known uh, with the alabaster jar. She came to Jesus' feet. She took that expensive, you know, drink, and she poured it out upon his feet with her tears. She washed, she washed him with that alabaster jar of perfume. Many people believe that was the same perfume she used to put upon her own body to attract men to herself, and now she was giving that over to Jesus, the Son of God, in worship. And, and when that was happening, men were talking. And Jesus, the Bible says, quieted them and said, this story will be told to the ends of the earth. And Jesus paid her the greatest compliment. This woman moved the heart of God. The woman at the well, maritally broken, five dysfunctional relationships. And he makes her the first evangelist to the Samaritan world. Let me tell you what Jesus had told me. He read my mail. He told me everything I needed to know. And he sent her. He entrusted her with that message. It reminds me that none of us is superior to the other. We only have the same privilege of taking our past, our mistakes, our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, our strengths, our distinctives, our uniqueness, and carrying the message of Jesus to the world. Even Jesus' own mother was recognized in his final days. I don't know where I would be without my mother. My mother uh, came to faith, gave her life to Christ and, and, and under duress and under, uh, uh, under burden and under you know, difficulty. And if it wasn't for her, my father wouldn't have got saved. And many people have been saved since then, including myself. But the last thing Jesus said uh, relationally while dying on the cross to his, his, his brother in the faith, Johnny said, take care of my mother. Look at how, look at this liberator. Look at how he viewed women. See, women, you have been commissioned. Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection? Why did he do all these things? What does this all mean to women today? I think the answer is in these questions, that Jesus was one to break away with tradition. In first century Israel, women were not allowed to testify in the court of law. They weren't considered reliable witnesses. Yet when Jesus was raised from the dead, he wanted the facts to be proclaimed to the world through a woman. And he commissioned a woman to spread the good news multiple times. And through the redemption of Christ, I believe women get their voice back. Can I have an amen? Can we give the Lord a big praise right now? Come on. Come on. Jesus redeems. I think think he commissioned women to be able to preach. Jesus did not limit her, restrict her, or tell her to stay out of the pulpit. Instead, he really ordained her to be a carrier of this glorious message. See, I don't think Jesus picked Mary to be the first evangelist because she woke up early that day. 
I think he picked her. He was just trying to make something clear that Galatians said, neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. In Christ. I want to say some specifics about my wife that you may not know, or just some little things. But, you know, God called Stacy first to raise champions and champion children, and she's done an incredible job. A lot of people say things about our kids, and I can't take uh, credit for that. I play a, I play a role, but, but Stacy's the champion. At one time, there seemed uh, little interest and certainly little margin, especially while running a Christian school. Many of you don't know that my wife is a principal of a Christian school. Yeah, that we've uh, had for 25, 26 years. But recently, in the last few years, God's been stirring her, and she's been talking to me about it, about getting more involved in ministry and kind of carrying the torch alongside uh, me and getting more involved and, and, and just kind of a new grace that's come upon her. Interestingly enough, he was talking to me too. And, 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 and what's interesting about this situation is too hard to explain right now, but we used to say about each other we could never work together in ministry. We'd kill each other. That's what we used to say. That's a, that's a bad thing to say. That's a bad testimony. But back then, that's what we thought, and, 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 and we, wouldn't have, we thought we wouldn't be able to be a good team. And, and more and more, we've discovered our strength. Our strength is our differences. We've learned to celebrate them and not compete over them. We've come together on that. And today, it's with a great sense of pride and joy that I get to publicly validate. Really, a miracle in our marriage first, but then also as a result in this ministry. Uh, today, you will receive another gift to the body. The Bible calls fivefold ministers uh, gifts. Jesus gave gifts. He gave some gifts, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and prophets. And today you're going to receive another gift. And God is doing something big in our church. Uh, one of the things that I've heard people say, and I'm going to highlight some videos here in a second of some people that wanted to encourage Stacy, but John and Lisa Bevere, who are friends of ours, uh, John said this, he said, the healthiest churches in the world today are where leaders are placed and positioned based on anointing and character, not gender. And so I want you to hear, Stacey, from some of your friends, just a couple of them. We're able to get little videos in here. And you guys can play those, and you guys can kind of dim the lights. Go ahead. I want to say a big congratulations to you today, Stacey. What a big deal this is, being ordained, recognizing this big gift that's on the inside of you. God's saying, I see the gift in you, and I want to amplify that gift. And ordination is a huge place for any minister of the gospel to attain. We are really excited about what's happening at Connect Church, not just for you, but for the generations yeah. to come. We do believe that God has called both you, Derek, and Stacy into ministry and into pastoring, and it's great that the church recognizes and the anointing that comes from that agreement and that recognizing what God has already done. It's not like we're asking God to do something. We're just following, recognizing what he's done, and saying, yay, we're all behind it. So Helen and I couldn't be more yeah. excited. We are thrilled for you. We love you. Congratulations. You know, Ephesians 4 says to walk worthy of the call of God, and you certainly have walked worthy, and we're just celebrating with you becoming a pastor. You know, the Bible says the Lord gives the word of power, and the women who bear it, publish it, are a great host. You are now part of that great host that publishes the word of God. You have had a voice to your husband. You've had a voice to your family, your children, now your grandchildren. You have a voice, a bigger voice now to the body there at Connect and to the body of Christ at large. We are in such agreement with what God is doing in your life. Can't wait to see the future 
and uh, we just know that many people are inspired because of you. So we're excited, Stacy. What an amazing day! Congratulations. There's great days ahead. From Celebration Church in Austin, Texas, keep moving forward. We love you. We bless you today, and congratulations on your congratulations. Ordination. Love you. Thank you for being here, everybody. I'm just gonna segue to the ordination part of this and what we refer to when we do this as a pastoral charge. Uh, before I do, and as the leaders are coming in, I just thought it'd be important for you to know, if, for those of you who call Connect Your Home Church, um, a couple little bullets, and I'll unpack some of this a little bit more next week, but there's still one head pastor, so we believe in headship, while at the same time we believe in co-leadership. So just like in our home, uh, we would we refer to this, we'd say things like, I'm the head of the house, but um, there are many places where my wife is in charge, and so the kids will come and they'll say something to me, and I'll say, "Go talk to your mom; she's in charge." <laughs> and um, and it's really that that way. You know, interestingly enough, it's common to see that in the in the home, but we don't see that in the church. And so it's it's common to see an as an absence of the father's voice in home, but there's an absence of the mother's voice in the church. And so we're working to bring back balance, bring back things to God's original design and take that which is disordered and bring order to it. So here at Connect, um, we are co-leading my wife and I together from a complementary point of view, uh, two unique voices, a mother's voice, a father's voice to bring balance to our church. We have uh, different roles in how they're expressed and they will be expressed uniquely, but we have similar responsibilities. We all, the two of us, uh, will help with vision. And she has all along, so this is really just a public validation of something that's already been happening. And uh, she helps with leadership and leadership development and also maintaining the culture of our church. One of the things I've always said is, though, I might be the head. My wife is the heart of our church. She's the, she's the heartbeat of the church. And so she, she feels things that, that I don't feel or that we don't feel. But I'm going to transition. Um, Stacey, can you just pull up just a little bit there? Thank you, doll. Um, today, I have the privilege of ordaining my wife, which is uh, very, very interesting. My, my, my life partner, my best friend. But in particular, in this situation, a co-laborer in ministry with me all these years. For 26 years, my wife has been by my side. So this, this is no way awkward for me. It's just different, you know, that I'm the one doing it. But or, ordination is an acknowledgment that God has bestowed certain gifts that, that to the one that he has called into service, it's not, ordination does not impart any rights or qualifications that God has not already bestowed upon you, Stacy. Everything God does in our life is a process from spiritual discovery of our gifts to deployment of those gifts, and it's an ongoing work of grace in our lives uh, together. This process requires diligence and patience, and so the process to qualify for ordination has three steps to it. There's calling, which is from God. There's preparation, which Stacy really has already been prepared. Uh, she's been she's more prepared than 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 uh, anybody I know. But today, the third part is separation. So, callings, preparation, and separation. God calls us. He prepares us. But when we are put into an office like this, uh, there's a separation. The Bible says that many are called, but few are chosen. Few are set apart for this. The Scripture talks about fivefold ministers, which is basically prophets, apostles, pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Uh, the pastor, the Bible says that God only gives some of those. Jesus gave them as gifts. And so you're receiving a gift, Connect. You're receiving a gift of a new pastor. And, and, and she's being set apart. And both the Old and New Testament leaders were set apart. Uh, Barnabas and Paul were set apart as missionaries. 
at Antioch in Acts chapter 6, seven men were set apart uh, to lead as deacons. What, what really distinguishes or qualifies for that is two important things. One, and, and this is something we had to do as a ministry with the authorization and blessing of the, of the eldership, the presbytery, which is here presently on the platform, we need to make sure that nobody is um, ordained hastily as an individual the candidate should first prove themselves to be qualified in character and in gifts for such ministry. My wife has outstanding character, not only by my own assessment, but others, and a lot of gifts. Uh, once an individual has been ordained, she should live an exemplary life, a Christian life, and show themselves to continuously be growing in maturity as a leader. Uh, you are responsible, Stacey, primarily to Jesus Christ, and secondly, to the church of which you're functioning now as a pastor. Uh, so, so today, we set apart Stacy Linnell Fry as ordained minister of the gospel in Connect Church. And so at this time, I'm going to charge you from the word of God. The word says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be a pastor desires a noble task. Now the pastor is to be above reproach, faithful to her husband. Hallelujah. That worked out good for me. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness. So as I said before, you have to cut back, Stacy. <laughs> not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. She must manage her own family well and see that her children obey her, and she must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. The top requirement in Scripture for being in this office is to lead your family well. You can't lead God's church unless you lead your family well. 2 Timothy 2, 22, I'll skip down in verse 23 or 4. It says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. This is one of the toughest jobs of a pastor because there's a lot of porcupine people out there. Um, and so you have to love them and gently instruct them. And then this charge, Stacy, 2 Timothy 4 says, I give you this charge. Paul's talking to his spiritual son, but I'm using this from me to you as pastor, not as husband. I give you this charge to preach the word, to be prepared in season and out of season, to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they'll suit their own desires. They'll, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Stacy, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So in good faith, to affirm before God and all of these witnesses that are here today, Stacy, to, to promise to fulfill your calling, please answer these questions with, I will by God's grace. Stacy, do you promise to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of your life? I will by God's grace. And do you promise to live as a righteous example before God and man, inside and outside the church, in a manner worthy of your calling? I will by God's grace. Do you promise to give your marriage and family the proper time and priority for them to be healthy and strong, understanding that the strength of your ministry is dependent upon the strength of your home? I will, by God's grace. And do you promise to preach the divinely inspired word of God with accuracy, clarity, deep conviction, and without compromise? I will, by God's grace. And lastly, do you promise to remain submitted and accountable to the governing body of Connect in a manner worthy of your calling? I will, by God's grace. Now, I have for 26 years, to the best of my ability, 
uh, endeavored to live above reproach in this ministry and to earn the trust of the good people that are here as well. And so I would say to you, Stacy, let it also not be said of you that you preach one thing and live another, and let it be said of you that you preach what you live and that you live what you preach. Today, Stacy, this is a high honor being bestowed upon you. Live worthy of this honor. Always remembering that God's grace is sufficient for you. And so at this time, I invite the elders to come around and the elders uh, as couples to come around and we're going to pray for you. Ordination by no means is an end for you, but the beginning of your journey of obeying God and making a difference in the kingdom of God. And I just ask some of the pastors or elders to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with Stacy as a pastor. We thank you for the wisdom that you've given her, the anointing, the ability to understand your word and speak it into our lives, the ability to encourage people and nurture people and point them the right ways. Lord, we pray that you would give her special skill in understanding your word, special skill in helping people over the hard things in their lives, pointing them the right direction. Lord, we pray that you would use her in mighty and great ways here in Ashland and Framingham and other campuses that Connect will be launching. Lord, we pray that you'd uh, give her new gifts, things that are unexpected for her, all things that will give greater glory to you, Lord, things that will help people step closer to you in relationship, help her to to guide leaders around here. So we pray you would just do a mighty and powerful work in her life, Lord. We thank you so much for blessing us with her. We pray that you would take her to the next level in whatever area you see her needing, you see this church needing, you see the people that she will be engaged with needing. We pray that you would do that great work, Lord, for our benefit and for the kingdom. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us with Stacy. Thank you for um, blessing her. Thank you for growing her and stretching her in only ways that you can, Lord. Just like Esther, Lord, you created her for such a time as this. Lord, pray that she continue just to lead and direct as you see fit. Lord, pray you continue just to put your anointing upon her life, upon her marriage, upon her family. Pray that she continues to be the strong, mighty woman of God that you have created her to be. Pray that she continues just to inspire and encourage all the women who look up to her, all the women who follow after her, Lord, as she continues just to move forward. You continue to push her and move her into greater heights and visibility, Lord. Pray you just equip her. Pray you keep your hedge of protection around her. Pray that, Lord, nothing... um, that you don't want in her space, in her influence, Lord, you remove it and pray that you remove all those within her influence that you see fit, Lord. Pray that you expand her sphere of influence, Lord. Pray that you grow and stretch her. Pray that you grow and stretch the ministry. Pray you continue just to cover and keep her and her family. And pray you continue just to grow us as a ministry, as a church, and you continue just to equip strong women um, within your body, Lord. Pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Father God, I'm, I'm just humbled that for 13 years you've allowed me to be part of a ministry uh, led by a man that you gave a vision to, that you put purpose in, um, and I'm just grateful that you gave him the helper that you gave him in Stacy. We've got to sit by and watch um, her just do what she does in, in that relationship uh, with unwavering strength. Uh, when the weight of the ministry came on PD, I, I just thankful God that she was willing to stick her finger in his eye, you know, give him a swift kick in the butt if he needed it. Hallelujah. Um, but importantly, to give him the embrace that he needed. Yes. 
to lift him up by the armpits when he needed it, to hold him. Do those things, Father God, that oftentimes I think went unnoticed because she doesn't do it for her. It's just the, the glory or the limelight of doing it. She did it because, God, you've given her a purpose. Yes. You've put a vision in her life for this ministry. This is not new. She's been walking in this ministry at, for as long as I've known her with strength and with consistency and steadfastness um, and with one of the biggest hearts that I know. And I'm thankful for that. Father God, I ask that you'll just take the gifts that you've given her and you'll magnify them. I pray, God, that she will use them and people will see them and they'll be drawn to those gifts. She has a heart for families. She's led by example for how to raise children the right way. How to she supported my children. I'm so thankful for that. And Father God, I'm just asking that she will be a beacon for the strength of families in this church, as she always has, that, that, that recognition will be on the billboards, and people will be drawn to this church because of that. Yes. So thank you, God. This is long overdue. She's been doing ministry for uh, the better part of a decade that I've known of, and I'm so thankful, Father God, that today we get to honor her and do this publicly. God, I just ask your blessings upon her. When the weight of ministry comes upon her, which she has already felt because she's did that with PD, I pray, Father God, that you'll give her the strength that she needs to continue to carry forward. And that, Lord, that she will do it in your name and your name only, and that the glory will be given to you. And it will be a great day for her, Father God, to, to put a smile on your face. I'm thankful for that, and I pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap for my wife, Pastor Stacy Fry. We're so proud of you, baby. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, leadership.